I've never been in trouble in my life. I didn't even have a parking ticket. I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I was brought up like cops are the, the good guys. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I do know that everything was stacked against me. Everything, like everything. Never been in trouble, and here I am, got a life bid, and I'm like, I don't know when I'm ever going to get out of here. And I didn't have the death penalty good thing because they probably would have executed me. I grew up trusting the systems. I grew up believing that every human being should do the right thing. And that's why, even though I knew I was dealing with corrupt people, I was not going to bribe anyone to get me out of prison because I wouldn't live with the fact that I bribed my way out of my wife's death. I'm not innocent until proven guilty. I'm guilty until I prove my innocence, and that's absolutely what happened to me. Our system, since I've been out 10 years, it's come a little ways, but it's still broken. I totally lost trust in humanity after what happened to me. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me. And today we have a very interesting and unusual show planned for you. Um, our two guests today are Shabaka Shakur, who served 27 years in prison for a double murder that he had nothing to do with. And Shabaka, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And with him is his attorney, who has uh, had a very colorful history, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Colorful. He's been involved in some of the most controversial and interesting cases of the last uh, generation. And I'm really excited to hear from you today. So, Ron Kuby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Ponytail and all. Still there. He's still a hippie. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, we got Ron, who's got uh, as much hair as you can imagine, and Chewbacca, who's got absolutely none. So, I'm just giving everybody a visual. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I want to mention quickly the fact that you are a, a TV star now, right? You have your own show on Stars. I wouldn't go that far, but Stars is doing a fantastic series called Wrong Man, uh, directed and produced by Joe Berlinger, who had done the Paradise Lost series. And basically, they take three cases of people, all homicides around the country, who claim they are innocent, have done many years in prison, and they re put resources into the case. They, they uh, hire me, detectives, a former state's attorney, a, a Detroit homicide detective, a FBI cold case consultant, and they have us reinvestigate these cases from scratch. So they're doing this right. They are, they're absolutely doing it right. They're providing the resources that defense lawyers didn't have originally, and, and most of us don't have now, uh, to go through the case from the beginning and to determine whether or not it indeed is the wrong man. Six episodes, three cases, one question, wrong man, on Stars every Sunday night at 9 p.m. and available for downloading on the Stars app. All right, shout out to Jeff Hirsch, my yeah. friend at Stars, and, and the whole crew and Joanna who's here. Um, that's a show that I'm going to be watching, and I hope everyone else will too, and uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about these cases. Thank Shibaka, you. this... Uh, this story is as terrifying as it is typical. Um, and what I mean by that, and we'll get into it, is that you were a victim of someone who was the a detective who was one of the most notorious detectives in terms of framing people in the history of our country or probably the world. Um, is a very dubious distinction. And we'll get into all of that. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. Um, did you grow up in Brooklyn? Yes, I was uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, lived um, most of my earlier life in uh, Brownsville and Bedford-Stuyvesant areas of uh, Brooklyn. And um, Shabaka Shakur is not your birth name. No, my um, I was named after my father, Lou Holmes. Um, but going back to your childhood, so did you have a traditional family situation? Was it a crazy neighborhood you grew up in? Can you paint a picture? Because this yeah. was crazy times when you were growing up in yes. New York. Um, well, I lived in Brownsville. I lived in the projects. I grew up in the projects. Um, lived in the projects mostly all my life. Uh, but I did have both my mother and my father. You know, we lived in a, uh, you know, I wasn't a single parent house or the normal 
you know, routine that they try to say. I, I had good parents. I went to good schools. Um, I had brothers and sisters. We were, we were a, a, a solid family. So you grew up around this environment um, that's, you know, well known to anyone who's, you know, familiar with New York. Um, and it's interesting because the time we live in now, you know, contrary to what people would have you believe, is a his- we're hitting historic lows in terms of crime rates. And I think that uh, back then we were probably pretty close to the high. I'm a New Yorker born and bred, so I remember it was, you know, it was well known that this stuff was, it, it was crazy in those times. Um, and then one day in 1988, Everything went haywire. Your world got turned, well, got turned completely upside down sometime between 88 and 89, right? When you were yes. wrongfully convicted. But in 1988, there was a double murder in your neighborhood. And it was a couple guys that you knew, right? Right. It was guys that um, I had known them for almost a decade. I had went to school with one of them, um, but I knew both of them. They were close friends who hung out all together, so I met one through the other. But... Um, uh, Stephen Hewitt was a guy that I went to high school with, and I knew him from my first year in high school, and we went through high school together. And Fitzgerald Clark, who we call C, was Stephen's best friend. And they lived in Flatbush, but um, we went to school downtown for a green area, and we knew each other. So we hung out during school and even after school. They were they were close friends of mine. And. They were they were in the game. They were in the yeah um, drug game. They were drug dealers. Uh, at the time that we're talking about, this was during the crack epidemic. So, not only was it high in crime, but you know the 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 city was being devastated by crack, and there was a call for um, aggressive policing because with crack came not only the the destruction of people physically from the drug, but also an increase of violence. You know, um, crack was one of the most lucrative drug trades at the time, and people were killing for for neighborhoods, you know. uh, Right, and it's interesting when we're going back to this, because I've spent, you know, 25 years uh, working to decriminalize drugs and, you know, restore some sanity to our drug policy. And the only distinction I want to make there is that crack didn't make people violent. Um, the money made people violent, Absolutely. right? They, people who were committing the violence weren't high. They were, they, were, they were the ones who weren't high. They were the ones who wanted to get everybody else high. Absolutely. And they were competing and fighting and killing for the right to have that, that income right. stream. So um, I just want to make that clear to our audience who may not be as familiar since this shows, you know, doesn't, we don't spend a lot of time talking about drugs. But that right. being said, so... These two guys get murdered in what seems like it was a drug hit, right? Yes. And how did they end up focusing on you? Um, you know, was it just laziness? Was it Well, it was it was partly laziness and it was partly um I would say a a, a tunnel vision by by the police. Once I became a suspect, they they zeroed in on me and they ignored everything else. Um, so I knew these guys and we had a a really close relationship. Um, so at that time I had driven one of them over to the block where we were selling drugs in Gates Avenue in, um, in the Bushwick section of, of Brooklyn. And we was having a conversation about a car. So I was trying to sell him my car. Um, because at the time I was working in Queens, Queens County Registers Department, and I was trying to have a, a, a more calm life. When I, at one point, to be honest with you, I was selling drugs with them. You know what I'm saying? Um, I needed money. They, they, you know, came to me. They said, "Listen, help us out with this." And I, I made runs. I did errands. I did little work for them to, to, um, to make money for myself, but. It got to the point where I had a decent job. I really didn't want to do it no more. I didn't want to take a chance on going to prison. So I was backing away from that. But I still had a good rapport with them. So I I went around there. I had met a girl that I was dealing with that lived in that neighborhood. So I went around there to where their drug spot was. Their brother, who didn't live in New York, who actually lived in um, Florida, 
Um, he was the brother of Fitzgerald Clark, the guy that we used to call C. And he was the older brother. He didn't know us. He didn't know me. He had just barely, uh, uh, he had just met us um, because he didn't live in New York. And he started becoming involved in their drug trade, bringing drugs from Florida to New York. So this is like one of the few interactions that he had with, with me personally. That night, uh, me and Steve had made an agreement about the car. He wanted to buy my car. He was going to give me a certain amount of money. Um, he wanted to give me some money from their drug spot that night and then owe me the rest. C, who was uh, his friend and mine's, but we used to always argue. We just had that type of relationship where we was always arguing about everything, but not a violent relationship or aggressive relationship toward each other. We just grew up together, and we was always um, on opposite sides of everything. So me and him were arguing about the car, and C's brother witnessed this argument. So later on, when, when C and Stephen were murdered, his brother, recalling that I was arguing with his brother, went to the police and implicated me in the murder. And the police um, arrested me, came and get me, to take me to the precinct to question me. I, I answered all the questions, told them where I was, told them I wasn't nowhere in Brooklyn at that time, explained to them the whole situation, gave them the name of alibi witnesses that they could contact right there. They contacted them that same night and verified my alibi. Uh, but when they went to Detective Scarcella and said, we got a guy that was pointed out by the brother of the deceased, but the guy has an alibi and he's saying he wasn't there and we really don't have anything, Scarcella took it upon himself to um, join into the interrogation and then fabricated a confession against me. Right, and that's, you know, it, it is interesting. You know, you talk about how you had alibi witnesses, more than one. Uh, there was no physical evidence no. Uh, connecting you to the crime. They found the gun that right. was used, but it didn't trace back to you in any way. There were no fingerprints. There was no... There was nothing for them right. to go on. There was nothing to point the finger at you, but they didn't care. Um, and Scarcella, uh, people who are fans of the show, listen to the show, have heard his name before because we've had other exonerees on who were framed by this same guy. And, you know, Ron, this is where I want to turn to you because you have probably as much experience as anyone in the country going after uh, police who are on the wrong side of the law. So I'd love to get your take on this part of the story because obviously you have intimate knowledge of it as well as knowledge of the entire world of, of you know, that, 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 that blue wall, so to speak. So I had first met Detective Scarcella in the 1990s when he was still working as a detective, still doing the things that we, we know now that, that he did. And I had cross-examined him in a, in a very high-profile case, which itself is now under review. David Ranta or a different one? No, this was the token booth bombing case. And he amazed me at just how good he was at lying, how charming, how, how avuncular, how he would look at the jury and bond with them. And, and I knew he was lying because I knew the facts of the particular case. But, but it didn't matter. People really liked Luis Garcella. Jurors liked him. Judges loved him. Prosecutors thought he was you know, the greatest thing on earth because he would literally make their cases. So I had a lot of experience with him from that time. Before he became famous in the public with the Ranta case, Shabaka had written to me. Uh, he had done his own post-conviction motion, was all put together, and and the singular witness against him was the, the, the Scarcella confession. And this was a remarkable confession because it was not witnessed by anybody else. 
Scarcella was not the case detective. There was no audio tape made. There was no video tape made. There was no signature of, of Shabaka's. The whole confession existed only out of Scarcella's mouth. And it was almost a stereotypical conviction. It started out, like so many of Scarcella's convictions did and the confessions he obtained, with a shout-out to the cleverness of Scarcella. That is to say, in, in Shabaka's uh, confession, uh, uh, Scarcella had Shabaka saying, you know what's going on, you know the story. Other cases, uh, you got it right, I was there. I mean, this that phrases like that come up in close to a dozen different cases. So the confession always starts out with, congratulations, Mr. Detective, you're such a smart guy, you got me. Uh, And in this case, there was no corroboration, which is unheard of, especially since Scarcella was not even the case detective. The case detective questioned Shabaka for hours, and and all he he got was Shabaka's alibi, which, by the way, proved to be completely correct. Eventually got him out of prison. Eventually comes, you know, 28 years later, though. And and so Scarcella walks into the cell uh, and then walks out 20 minutes later with this confession and didn't even call the case detective. He didn't even say, hey, hey, Detective Mahoney, come on in. Uh, This guy's got something to say. Nothing. It's the only place this confession uh, uh, occurred. And and the paperwork showed that Scarcello really wanted Mahoney, who was the case detective, to take responsibility for the confession. He was willing to, to give it up. Mahoney could say that he got it. Mahoney didn't trust it. So Mahoney wrote the statement down but never attributed to anybody in any fashion. And, and that, you know, what we call the orphan statement, like Mahoney could remember where it came from. Who said that? He knows that, that Shabaka didn't say that to him. And that was the key piece of evidence that got Shabaka convicted. Let's go back to that uh, conviction because you were um, arrested, I'm assuming, on that day after Scarcella came in and magically produced this confession in 20 minutes that this other experienced detective couldn't get from you in hours and hours of questioning? Well, well, I was, um, the murder happened one night. The next day I was at work and they came to um, get me at work to tell me that they wanted to take me to the precinct to ask me questions. Um, now, of course, I didn't know about the murder at the time. So I went to the precinct and I answered the question because I didn't know what was going on. They didn't take take me to the precinct and say, oh, we want to talk to you about a murder. They just said, we want to ask you some questions about where you were last night. So I'm answering the questions because I didn't want to get in trouble. Were you thinking that they knew something about your past drug stuff or well, like? I, I, um, on the way to the precinct, one of the cops asked me, if I owned a, a green BMW, which I did, right? So that was the car that I had given to Steve the night before. So I knew who had the car, and I know that they were drug dealers. So in my mind, I'm thinking, did they get caught with drugs in the car, and now it's coming back to me? You know, I'm trying to figure out what it is, but I don't want to lie. So I'm going to the precinct when they're asking me, do you know these guys? I'm saying, yeah, I know these guys. Is this your car? I'm saying, yeah, that is my car. Um, but I didn't have my car last night. I wasn't with them last night. I was in Queens. I was with this person. I was with that person. So I didn't want to lie, but I'm telling them exactly where I'm at so that they would realize that whatever happened, I wasn't involved. It wasn't until the end of Nearly nearing the end of that conversation with uh, Detective Mahoney that he tells me about their murders. So now I'm like, okay, I don't know nothing about that. I had nothing to do with nobody being murdered. Um, I already told you where I was. And that was the the, the gist of my conversation with with Detective Mahoney. I had no previous knowledge prior to him telling me about what was going on. Um, When Detective Scarcella came in, um, like Ron said, he had nothing to do with my case. He wasn't assigned to my case. He was just in the precinct. And when he came in, they came to him and said, look, we got a guy who is saying he wasn't there, but he's the only suspect that we have. And remember, so I he was, was like, I got this. I'll take care of this. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what he did. He came in and he said, OK, I got it. I'll, I'll, I'll handle this. And he came in there to talk to me. But. 
as soon as he came in there, he came in there aggressively accusing me. I know you did it. I know who you are. You were selling drugs with these guys. These guys are drug dealers. All of y'all involved. You you uh you murdered them so that you wouldn't have to share the block with them or whatever, right? So I looked at him and I said, you know what? I don't even want to talk to you, you know. And he got aggressive, started banging on the table. I'm trying to help you, but instead you're gonna go up north for a long time. You're gonna go down for these murders. So. I was telling them, you know, very politely, go F yourself, because I didn't want to deal with that. And he left. At that point, I had no idea that he was going to fabricate a confession. I thought that was the end of the conversation. I didn't even know about the confession until um, I was arrested and I was given a court-appointed attorney and uh, um, the court-appointed attorney tells me, you confessed. And I said, are you crazy? I didn't confess. I told the people where I was. I gave them the alibi witnesses. They verified my alibi witnesses. And the court-appointed said, yeah, that's what you told this detective. But you confessed to the other detective. And that's when I realized that this guy had fabricated a, a, a confession. And this is an important time to mention that a confession is uh, the most powerful evidence that there can be um, it's really hard uh, for any jury or jurist right. uh, or, or juror I should say it's hard for any juror to understand why someone would confess to a crime they didn't commit right. and you know as people listen to the show and they hear these stories over and over again they start to understand in many cases they're coerced confessions in your case there was no confession right. and let's not forget that Scarcella was a guy who used the same witness in six different murder cases who was a drug addict um, part time prostitute I think who he was supplying with drugs right. and was you know and he she, he was so lucky that she happened to witness six different murders I mean that's yes. kind of a miracle a little murder magnet he got away there, with it. Just, yeah, she you know, was a, take her around Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, also remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. I do want to take this opportunity because Ron's here too, um, and maybe he can answer me this, but I often tell people on the show, and Shabaka would have benefited from this advice, I think, right, that if you get arrested for something you didn't do and you get taken in, the only thing you should say is your name, your address, and I want a lawyer. Is, would you agree with that? Without a doubt. And whenever I debate with cops about this, I always say, let me ask you this. If, if your son called you from a precinct and said, Dad, I've just been arrested, what should I do? What are you going to tell him? And the cops invariably say, I say, don't say anything. We'll get you a lawyer. Don't say we're without a lawyer. 
And, and we know that's true. Now, now Shabaka had some experience in the criminal justice system. So, and he knew he didn't do anything. So he felt comfortable giving his alibi, which was ultimately borne out decades later, and he felt comfortable telling Scarcella, get the F out of here, I'm not going to talk to you. Uh, what nobody anticipated uh, was that Scarcella would simply make up a confession. So you've got the made-up confession. You have the brother of the dead guy originally telling a muddled story but thinking Shabaka was involved. But through a period of time with Scarcella, his story changes, evolves, Absolutely. morphs until he saw Shabaka shoot both of them you know, one in the back and another in the back as he was running. Things that he could not have seen because, because physically impossible. Because he wasn't there, yeah. Right. Well, he wasn't no, he there, was but there. Even, had he been there, uh, just the location of the bodies was all wrong. But, right. but, okay, so now you've got your eyewitness, kind of. You've got your confession, not really. And you stop looking for anybody else. Now, had they spent, oh, another day or two, they would have discovered that, that one of the guys who got made dead that night had been the subject of a previous murder attempt just two months earlier by the Renkers. Actually, both of them. Right, yeah, both of them, right, right, yeah, yeah Steve. Okay, okay. So let me just pass okay. this. So this one came with instructions. Right, right, right. right. It's like, okay, they missed the first time, I and mean, they shot up the club, but they right. missed the guys the first time. So, and everybody knew it was the Renkers, which is a Jamaican drug dealing group, particularly violent, even by the standards of, of the time. And they're not sort of forgive and forget kind of people. They're not, they weren't like, oh, okay, well, we missed them the first time. We'll give you a pass. There was every reason to think that they had fallen into conflict with the Renkers over drug turf uh, and that that's what this murder was. But nobody cared at the time. I will note that they continued... Uh, to look at the Renkers after Shabaka was convicted. After he was convicted, given his 40 to life and sent up state, there were still other detectives who weren't entirely comfortable and were pursuing those leads, which ultimately went nowhere. But had they done it at the beginning, this whole thing would have been different. Like Ron said, the, the, the confession, the alleged confession, um, nobody, nobody would have predicted that. You know what I'm saying? Um, it was it was just beyond my thinking that this guy was going to say that I confessed to something. Um, the 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 situation around it was suspicious from the from the get go because you're in a precinct with at least 30, 40 police officers, and not one not one police officer heard the confession. Right? There's no notes. There's no. There's nothing. There's no proof of it. There's no. You know, anytime you take a confession, anytime you see a police officer interview anybody, they write it down. There was nothing written down. There was no signing of the confession. They didn't even call the prosecutor and say, hey, this guy just confessed. They didn't take a videotape. There was absolutely no proof of a confession other than De Detective Scarcella just saying it out of his mouth, even though we're in a precinct full of people. So there was no proof that a confession ever existed. Now, what, what Ron said about uh, um, the previous attack on these people, two months prior to that, there was an attempt on both of these same guys. So what's the odds that somebody tries to kill two guys and then two months later, those same two guys actually get killed? They must have been really unpopular. Right? Well, <laughs> I mean, look, it, it's happened, mm -hmm. but, but those would be the likely suspects. Uh, to begin with. So so what you have here, okay, you've got a bad detective, no question about it. But he's not the only person involved. You have an uh, allegedly not bad detective, the actual case detective, right. who does nothing. You have a prosecutor who decides to go ahead and believe this stuff, or at least put it in front of the jury. You have a judge who who has seen Scarcella before and will see Scarcella again and allows this whole case to go forward. And ultimately, you have a jury that, that has never seen Scarcella before, but gosh, you know, he seems like a much, you know, Decorated. more dapper dude oh, than, yeah. than the black guy here and, and convicts and appeals court after appeals court after appeals court 
affirms. And this has been the pattern, not just in Shabaka's case, but, but in, in over a dozen other cases that this detective got involved in. And I want to point out that the only winners in this scenario were the rinkers, right? Um, which is uh, society loses. Um, obviously, Shabaka gets his life taken away from, or a bit, you know, most of it. And um, you know, the victims don't get justice. Um, and these guys are free to go out there and shoot the next guy that crosses well, their their path. Those you know? guys actually ended up going to federal prison for, I believe, like twelve different murders. Um, but the the amazing thing is that how they discovered this. Um, one of the guys in my case, Fitzgerald Clark, had got arrested in a shootout with a machine gun against the Rinkers during that previous attempt. So when he ends up dead from the case that I'm in jail for, he has an open case that he doesn't show up for. When he doesn't show up, the judge asks, okay, where is he at? So the family has to go and say, oh, he's dead. He's no longer alive. So the judge asks for, well, let me see some type of proof. You can't just come in here and say he's dead. So the proof that they give him was the death certificate in my case. So at that point, the district attorney's office has connected the two cases, right? They know that this guy had a previous attempt on him, and then he's dead. They know who did the previous attempt, yet their tunnel vision prevented them from investigating that. This is a suspect, you know. Here's, here's a story that, just, that the brother's saying, oh, this guy had to argue with my brother, but here's, a guy who, here's some guys who actually attempted to kill him just recently. So they're suspects, but because of the tunnel vision of the police and the prosecutor, they ignored that evidence. If they had searched just a little bit, they would have found out that the attorney who bailed out Fitzgerald Clark, the guy who got killed in my case, was the same attorney who worked for the Rankers, who got disbarred for fraud in working with the Rankers in fraudulent paperwork that he did for them. Like, the connections are all there. So there was a lot of stuff there that could have been investigated, that should have been investigated, but Scarcella, like so many of his colleagues decided to short-circuit this entire process because he was convinced Shabaka was guilty. Uh, I, I have actually never known a cop who went out and deliberately uh, framed a person who he knew was innocent, planted evidence on somebody he believed to be innocent or lied about a person he believed to be innocent. Uniformly, uniformly, when the police engage in this kind of activity, it's because they think the person is guilty. And that guilty person, they think, is going to get off because there's not enough evidence against him. So it falls to the Scarcellas of the world, of whom there were many and remain many. He was just better at it than anybody else. It falls to them to, to put some extra frosting on the cake uh, to make sure that the guilty guy gets convicted. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. So you go to trial with your public defender Mm-hmm. Um, having been held in jail, I'm assuming pre-trial. Yeah. Uh, for what? For about a year. For I think it was 14 months. Did you? Th- how? First of all, how long was the trial? The trial was like two days, a day and a half, something mm-hmm. like that. That's a pretty well, quick. There wasn't trial. any evidence. Right. There's nothing. <laughs> there's, there's you nothing get really there. sure trials when you don't have any evidence. Right. Yeah. And you have your alibi witnesses, and did they, they testify? They they were never called. What happened was, um, I had a, a public defender who did not believe I was innocent. And like you said, he, just like most people thought, this guy confessed. He's guilty. So he came to me and tried to say, and told me, I'm going to get you a good plea. And I told him, I don't want to plea. I'm going to go to trial. I didn't commit this murder. And he said, listen, you can't win a trial. I'm going to get you a good plea. So he never investigated my case at all. Um, I wrote to the judge six months in, I wrote to the judge and told the judge, listen, I need a new lawyer. This guy does not believe I'm innocent. He's not doing any investigative work. Um, he's not going to be able to prove my innocence. The judge ignored it. Six months later, a year in, I write to the judge again and file a motion to have him dismissed as my, um, 
as my attorney because he's done no investigation. I've given him the name of alibi witnesses. I've, I've given him everything that I can give him. You know, I've told him people that I remember that live on that block who he could go um, interview. He does none of this. So right before I'm getting ready to go to trial, I go back to the judge and the judge on record tells me, uh, I'm not going to get rid of your lawyer now. You're getting ready to start trial. But I'm telling the judge he hasn't investigated anything. The day I start trial, I have to write a summary of the facts because he didn't even know the facts of the case. Did he ever visit you in jail? He never visited me. He um, After court, di- um, court dates, he would go in the back and talk to me and we would argue um, because I told him, you're not investigating. I'm innocent. Um, he tried to get me to take a plea. When I wouldn't take the plea and I kept pushing to go to trial, he said, okay, we're going to go to trial. Like I said, I had to write him a summary of the facts because he didn't know the facts in my case. We went to trial um, and he did terrible because he hadn't he hadn't investigated. He hadn't talked to none of the alibi witnesses. I had to get on the phone and call one of my alibi witnesses and tell him, come to court because the, the lawyer had never reached out to her. And she came to court. And when she came to court, she stepped in the courtroom and told basically the judge, I'm the alibi witnesses, you know, and he still did not use the alibi witness at trial. I've heard that story more times than I would like to have heard it. So so take a quick pause here. What are the elements we, we have so far? We have a, a corrupt detective. Uh, we have a system that believes Shakur is guilty. Uh, and is not looking at any other suspects. We have a prosecutor who's more than willing to to put a, a highly dubious story before a jury, and we have a judge who's willing to allow it, and now sort of the last piece of this is in place, an utterly incompetent defense lawyer who, who not only doesn't believe his client is, is, is innocent, but is unwilling to even prepare a defense for the client he believes is guilty. All he wants is a plea. He hasn't done any work. He's underpaid uh, and just doesn't care. So, so this is the storm. That, and I was going to say that if you didn't already. I mean, the worst part of it, really, the most inexcusable part is that he doesn't care. I mean, you know, sitting there and I think everyone listening is probably feeling the same way I'm feeling the, 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 the feeling of helplessness that you must have had as a person who's literally facing spending the rest of your life in prison um, and nobody's helping you that, that word is exactly how I felt helpless because I brought it to the judge's attention and the judge said, no, you have to go on with this attorney. Even though I'm telling the judge he's not doing anything, he's not investigating the case, he hasn't spoken to any of the witnesses, there are gaping holes in this story, right? The brother of Fitzgerald Clark, his initial statement to the police was, um, I know who did this, right? He never said, I saw it. And then he... In his statement that night in the precinct, when he did speak in detail to the police, he still didn't say he saw me commit the crime. A year later, he he's not saying, oh, I know who did this because he had an argument. He's saying, I actually saw the murder. I seen Shabaka sneak up behind my brother and shoot my brother twice in the back. Amazing how the right? memory comes back but after here's all the that thing. time. Here's the thing. His brother died from a single gunshot wound to the chest. So the account that he gave at trial didn't even match the ballistics or the the, uh, autopsy or anything. It wasn't even close. No. (laughs) Right. And and after we got the case and we did some reinvestigation, I mean, the the witness had long since died, uh, but we did speak to his brother. uh, And his brother was convinced that he was convinced that Shabaka had done it. it. It's not as though he got on the witness stand deciding to implicate somebody he thought was innocent. He got on the witness stand with the encouragement of Scarcella and the district attorney and the judge and and embellished a story, again, because he thought the guy was guilty. And if I don't tell these things the way I'm supposed to tell them, this guilty guy is going to get off. So you were fucked. 
I mean, basically, yeah. the odds, if I was a bookie and I was watching this proceeding, I wouldn't have taken any money from anybody who wanted to bet guilty. There would have been no odds that I would have accepted because it, it was it was a lock. I mean, you were done, right? The, what jury is possibly going to watch that proceeding and come up with any other conclusion other than that you're guilty? You want to hear something funny? The jury took longer in deliberation than the trial. Wow. The jury took... Two and a half days of deliberation. Wow. The trial was only a day, a day and a half. The jury, even hearing these stories and having no defense, because no alibi was presented, no defense at all, the jury had problems because they kept saying, this confession doesn't make sense. And this guy's story doesn't make sense. So they took two and a half days of deliberation before they found me guilty. So they come back in and obviously they found you guilty. Yes. And that moment, can you paint a picture of that moment? Like, was the courthouse, was it a hot day, a cold day? Who was there? Was it noisy? Was it this? Was it that? Um, my mother was there. That's what I remember. Because I remember turning around and looking at her and she had tears in her eyes, and I just kept thinking to myself, like, wow, I can't believe, you know, that this is actually happening. Um, it's, it's funny because to a certain extent, you know, even then I considered myself, like, conscious, like, understanding that the system doesn't work. But I still had some faith that it was going to work. I figured they can't find me guilty. They... How can somebody say they saw me shoot somebody in the back and he was never shot in the back? You know, how can somebody say, okay, he confessed and they don't even have the confession? You know, they have nothing but his word. So all of these things was running through my mind and I'm saying there's no way that, they, that these guys can't realize that this is a setup. And I was praying for the best. And then I was just praying that it would be manslaughter. Um, and when they convicted me of murder, I remember the judge, I don't know if it was then or my sentence, but I remember the judge giving me an opportunity to say something and my lawyer basically saying to be remorseful, you know, and, and I remember me telling the judge, I started to say, you know, I, I'm sorry about these guys' deaths. And I remember I said, I'm sorry about these guys' deaths, but I didn't do it. <laughs> That's all I could say. I said, I, I really didn't do it. And that was all I could say. It. You know, like my lawyer was kind of like pushing me, say something, be, be remorseful, try to, you know. But I just, I was stuck because all I kept telling was I didn't do it. And that was it. And you should be very well aware that, you know, there's right now, while we're sitting here in courtrooms across this country, there's another Shabaka Shakur who is, whose life is hanging in the balance, um, who's innocent and who's about to be judged by a jury of his peers. And, um, and again, if you're listening, then you're going to be in, you know, some of you will be in that position at some point. Some of you will be on a civil trial, some of you will be in different trials, but some of you are going to end up being on murder trials or, or, or trials where the sentences are, are, are extreme. And in those cases, obviously, it's extremely important that you be woke, uh, so to speak. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses. 
and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone, and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now... Introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. I'd even take it one step further, Ron, and I'd say that, you know, it's shocking to me that I don't think any, maybe there's one state that has mandatory videotaping of witness statements, right? Because the witnesses, as you said, can be led very easily. They can be influenced. They can be fed information. And eyewitness misidentification is such a tremendous uh, factor. It's it's the number one cause of wrongful conviction. Right, because even though we know how, how frequently uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses are wrong, even though we have a zillion studies that, that has shown this, when somebody gets in, up there in the courtroom and looks at the defendant and points at the defendant and said, it's him, I'll never forget his face as long as he lives, People believe that, just like people believe that only guilty people make confessions, um, and and so they believe the false confessions, they believe the bad eyewitness identification. So that's what I think people should. And obviously, if you have no forensic evidence, especially these days, where you know there's DNA, there's cell phones, cell phone towers, Google searches, we all leave these electronic signatures. If all of that is kind of missing then you should be really skeptical about this. In this country, if I was redoing the justice system, I might put in a, a, a rule that says that if there's no corroborating evidence other than a cross-racial identification, the case is not going forward. Or at least forward. a cross-racial right. identification of a stranger. Yeah. I mean, if it happens, happens to be your wife or something, then it's... That's right. yeah, okay. fair enough. Yeah. Um, but that's, a, that's not the, that's not the uh, common uh, uh, Let me case. say also that I, I think that there has to be open discovery also. Um, because in, in, in my case specifically, like I said, the prosecutor knew that a previous attempt had been made on these guys. They knew this a month after my arrest, you know? So... They, if they had turned that information over to the defense, you know, and assuming that the defense lawyer would have investigated because he didn't investigate anything else, but assuming that he had that information and he would investigate it, that was reasonable doubt. That's all I needed. And people don't realize that even in a place like New York, which is fancied as a progressive state, we have trial by ambush. And by that, I mean, you don't get the witness statements against you until the day of jury selection or maybe a day earlier just so we don't have to disrupt jury selection. All of that material, all of the things the witnesses said they saw you do, you don't get that until your trial is just about to begin, which of course makes taking an intelligent plea impossible because you have no idea what it is they have against you. It makes investigation Impossible, especially if you're innocent. You don't have any idea who the witnesses are. If you're guilty, it's easier because oh yeah, yeah, Joe and uh, Snappy, they were there. You know, I can tell you all about them. What's wrong with them? But if you're totally innocent, you have no idea who these people are. Then there's no investigation that that can take place. Right, trial by ambush, which dates back to uh, hundreds of years ago in England, where they used to think that uh, you know this was the best way to get to the truth was by ambushing people so they wouldn't have time to get a defense together. Um, so Shabaka, you end up getting sentenced to forty years, two four, two sentences of twenty to life running consecutively. Forty years to life. You were twenty two years old at the time. Yes. Right. So we know that when you hear these sentences, 15 to life, 20 to life, 40 to life, it really means life unless you're willing to take a plea to something you didn't do. So because the parole board doesn't want to hear that same story you told in the courtroom, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. I'm sorry. These people are dead. Nobody wants to hear that shit. So you go to prison. 
Um, which prison were you sent to? Uh, first prison I was sent to was Sing Sing. And Sing Sing back then was a, I mean, it's still a very intimidating place just to visit. Yes. Um, and to go there as a young man, uh, 22 years old, you must have been scared out of your wits. I think that at the beginning, I, I went through a whole transition of, of emotions. At the beginning, like I said, it, it was my failure to accept what had happened. I just kept believing that the best outcome was going to happen. Um, when my appeal started getting denied, um, there was a, a, a time of anger in which, you know, I ended up getting in trouble going to, to the box, solitary confinement for years, you know, because I was just so angry that my mind was thinking, you know, these guys put me in here, I'm going to give them hell, you know. And it wasn't until I think I was in solitary confinement that um, I met other brothers in there that had been in there for years. And they would ask me, you know, what are you here for? And I would say, uh, I'm innocent, but I've been charged with two murders. And they would tell me, you can't give up, you know. And I started to see guys that I had came to prison with who were doing five years, 10 years, and they were going home. And it started to dawn on me that I would never go home, that I, this was going to be my life from now on unless I seriously got into trying to find a way out. And and it, and it became a revelation that it wasn't going to be through somebody else helping me, that it had to be me. So I started to go to school. Um, I, I went to college. I got a college degree. I started to learn law, started taking law classes. Um, at the time, Cornell was giving law classes inside the prison, so I started signing up for law classes. I got a job in the law library, um, started learning by working through with other people's cases, helping them with their cases. And it happened to be the best thing that could have ever happened to me because working in the law library, I kept running into cases that had to do with Detective Scarcella. Mm -hmm. You know? So as I'm reading people's cases and I'm saying, this is the same detective in my case. And I'm asking them questions about their case. And he said, yeah, he set me up. And then I'm saying, yeah, he set me up too. But then when it became like two people, three people, four people, I started to see the pattern and I said, wow, he didn't just do this to me. He did it to a lot of people, you know? And I started to formulate in my own mind that the only way I was going to get out was to expose Carcella. We had to show that this guy was a a, a crooked cop. Um, I think it was, um, I, I had started working on my uh, motion and I, met up with uh, Derek Hamilton, who was also a Scarcella case. He had already put in his motion, so he was waiting for his response. And I told him, I said, look, we need to expose this guy. We need to really concentrate on Scarcella. He's the key. You know, I told him, I said, I know about three or four guys who he set up. And he told me, well, I know about three or four guys, too. And we started comparing our notes. So, like I said, he had already pushed his motion. So in my motion, I started focusing on Scarcella. Even though I started arguing an actual innocence claim, a portion of it was saying that Scarcella should not be believed because of his suspicious actions in all these cases. And I started enumerating cases in which it was very suspicious of confessions and evidence that, you know. So as I did that, we happened to look up that Derek um, was paroled and because he was paroled he was outside and by then we had started um, gathering people me, him and uh, Danny Rincon who was another guy that was innocent we all worked in the law library and we started working together as a group and we formed our own group which we call AI which was to us meant the actual innocence guys and we would work on actual innocence cases like if somebody came and said we're innocent we would sit down with them and really grill them to see if, you know, go over their evidence, go over their case to see if they were really innocent. And if we believed it, we would take them in and we would work with their case, too. Now, you actually had a law firm in prison. Yes. <laughs> which is pretty incredible. You know, um, all that, three of us were law clerks and we knew the law. and But our specialty was really that actual innocence. 
So we started working on people's cases like that. It's incredible. I mean, just visualizing the law firm in prison is just so. And and I know Derek very well. As you know, I know Derek, and he's he's a brilliant guy. I mean, an incredible, incredible legal mind. Um, and uh, and his story is amazing. Of course, he's been on the podcast as yeah. well on wrongful conviction. So that was your moment where you actually sort of found this, you know, inner strength and this desire right. to 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 better yourself, and in the process, find a way to get yourself out, which you right. did. Um, and the same for a, a number of other guys that are still in there, and that's yes. you know, and that's so inspiring to people like me who are in this movement. Realize that we don't have endless amounts of time. I do want to get to the conclusion, and, and Ron, I want to get back to you, and then we're going to finish up with you. Um, so you get involved, and what was the magic bullet? What was the silver bullet here? How did you manage to help um, Shabaka? find his way out of this morass 27 years later? There wasn't a magic bullet. Uh, there, there were a lot of numerous small non-magic bullets that eventually uh, perforated the target sufficiently. Uh, Shabaka sent me his set of papers, and, and you know, it was a, an amazing set of papers. Uh, it would be amazing if a lawyer had done it. It was even more impressive that it, it was. It came from people who have the fewest resources uh, and the least formal legal education, although they did have a lot of time and they had a lot of motivation. And I recognized Scarcella from, from the earlier days and recognized this is exactly the kind of stuff he did. And, and I felt we could win this. Uh, and so I agreed to take the case. Shabaka made it very clear that, okay— He's happy that I'm taking the case, but he remains in control of strategic decisions. He had had enough lawyers telling him what was best for him, and and I agreed with that and, and agreed to work under those conditions. And then it just became a very long process. The judge granted a hearing. Before we went to hearing, uh, all of the stuff about Scarcella emerged. New information was found. Uh, Shabaka had managed to find a couple of witnesses who were there with uh, uh, Harley Young, the, the star eyewitness, who were in the building with him uh, at the time the shooting took place. They came forward, the alibi witnesses, whoever the, the lawyer saw back then the young women he saw back then that he didn't want to put on the stand. The, the middle-aged women right now were extremely impressive, regular citizens, hardworking, smart, very, very persuasive. And, and over a series of, I guess, about a year yeah. uh, of, of hearings, finally the judge uh, uh, wrote a very strong decision vacating his conviction and um, stating for the record that there was a significant likelihood that Scarcella had fabricated the confession. And at that point, the DA's office, under new leadership now, under Ken Thompson, called me and said, we're done, we're not appealing, we're not retrying, charges will be dismissed. And Shabaka walked out in, in June of 2015. Yes. How did you get the news that the, that the conviction was being vacated after this crazy ordeal? Where were you? I was in prison in Shawanga Correctional Facility at my job. I, I used to work. Um, at that point, I was working at the grievance department because they would no longer let me work in the law library. So... Uh, I was working at the grievance department, and the officer came and said, you got a phone call from your wife. So I went and got a call, and I called her, and she said, uh, they reversed your case. So initially, I wasn't sure if she was correct because, you know, she could have got it confused. And so I wanted to hear from somebody officially, so I hung up and I called uh, Leah Busby, who is uh, the attorney with Ron Kuby on my case. And Leah was, like, excited. She said, they reversed your case, and um, you're going to come home, you know. And I was shocked, but I, my first question, like, when? Yeah. <laughs> is it now, tomorrow, when? So they was like, as soon as the paperwork clear, you're, you're getting out. And it took a few days, but, you know, it was – the shortest time ever because I knew I was getting out soon. Did you sleep during those three days? Yes. Um, 
everybody thought, and and that's a question that people always ask, the anxiety of those last few days. But to be honest with you, it was the most calmest days of the whole bit. The anxiety comes when you don't know what's happened. But when you know, okay, I'm getting out of here in the next couple of days, like all my stress was gone. I was wondering about that because there's people, people follow me on Instagram, which I'm at, it's Jason Flom, of course, but people follow me know that yesterday I walked a guy out of prison in, yeah. in Virginia, Lenny Singleton, after 23 years. And I was wondering, I forgot to ask him that, but I was wondering whether he had gotten any sleep uh, the night before knowing that he was going to get out the next day. But yeah, I guess it's one or the other. You don't sleep at all. You sleep like a baby. And now, Shabaka, um, the best part of the show every week is when um, everyone stops talking uh, and lets you... Well, in this case, you, but whoever the the, the featured uh, guest on the show is, just have the mic to say whatever it is you want. Um, one thing I am interested in knowing is whether you feel bitter about what happened to you and and what and how you're how you're processing all this and moving forward. But uh, this is um, this is that time, so the mic is yours. Okay, um, I don't feel bitter. I feel uh, I feel sad that the people haven't taken that there's been no accountability. You know, like he said, that Scarcella is still um, basically has gotten away with what he's done. He's ruined lives, uh, not just mines, but numerous others. And then people don't even realize that it's not just the defendant. It's the families. It's the, the my mother and my father. My mother died while I was in prison, and I never got a chance to spend no time with her. Uh, my father died within the year of me coming home. And even when I came home, he was suffering from dementia and didn't even know I was home. So they never got to see me as a free man. Um... It's, it's, it's families that get destroyed because of, of the situation that he created. And it's and like I said, it's not just me. It's dozens so far. Um, that saddens me because they were people who could have stopped it. Not only Detective Scarcella, but everybody who allowed it to go on is complicit. You know what I'm saying? The district attorneys, the other police officers, uh, the judges who looked at this case and seeing all of these gaping holes in the story continue to allow it, everybody's responsible for this. And until we actually take personal responsibility to say, okay, I'm going to do something to not let this go on, it's going to continue because that's the way the criminal justice system has been created to protect people like Detective Scarcella. Um, that's, like I said, I'm not bitter. I'm just saddened that we haven't realized that and done something more about that situation. Um, since I've been home now, I, I continue to work with certain cases. You know, um, Danny Rincon is one, uh, Stephen Brathway is another, James Jenkins. These are people who I know are innocent and who are incarcerated and continue to work with them. I've been able to put my life back in order to some extent as far as, you know, to con reconnect with my family, uh, my brothers, my sisters, my nephews, my nieces, people who, you know, I have nephews and nieces who never even saw me. You know, they, they was raised hearing about their uncle but never having the opportunity to see me. So it gives me a time to put back my family. Uh, I'm, I'm working now. I own a restaurant in Brooklyn, in Best Eye, 718 Live, 1114 Fulton Street. And definitely come there and, and eat with us and enjoy it because not only is it a restaurant, but it's an event space where we do things to give back to the community. Like we are always having some type of event in which we interact with the community and we try to give back. You know, um, I spent most of my life in prison, so. I want to be able to really interact with the world now that I'm home and to be some type of example for that even in prison, you can come out and do something positive that because there's a fear of, of guys in prison and the fear is purposely promoted so that people can do what they want to do without anybody having any empathy for those guys in prison. Well, I'm... Um really happy to see you 
out here doing good things. Um, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about these cases uh, that you just talked about, if they want to get involved and help, um, how can they do that? Do you do you do Facebook? Because you want to get people yeah, to email my Facebook, you. My Facebook page is Shabaka Shakur. Um, they can go up there. I'm always posting stuff about these cases and about stuff that we're involved in and stuff that we're doing. So if you follow me on Facebook, you you can catch up on everything that we're doing. Okay, it's Shabaka Shakur, and uh, of course that's S H A B A K A and Shakur, like Tupac Shakur. Right. Everybody knows how to spell that. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, 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 please do get involved. Follow Shabaka, and let's get these other guys home and keep this momentum going. So um, I want to thank both of you for coming and dropping some knowledge with everybody here on Wrongful Conviction. Ron, thank you. Hey, thank you. Ron Kuby, uh, stars The Wrong Man is the show, and Chewbacca Shakur is the right man uh, for the job, <laughs> and he's going to go get these other guys out, and I'm going to help and you're, everybody get involved. So Chewbacca, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.